pastor, the under-shepherd of this fellowship, Pastor Nate Bishop and our relationship that God has blessed to mend in these last couple of years that we've known each other. I'm so thankful to the Lord that he is the under-shepherd of this church, and I know he's a man after God's own heart. I know, and what uh, delights me about your pastor is that he just loves Jesus, amen, and he seeks to be a man that honors the Lord in all, all areas of his life, as a husband, as a father, and as a, a pastor of this church to his lovely wife, first lady, sister Bishop, all right, thank the Lord for her, amen, amen. They, uh, they came down to Main Street a couple of months ago and just, we had a wonderful time of fellowship and your pastor preached a wonderful word out of Joshua chapter 24, so our hearts were thoroughly blessed uh, by his gift of preaching to us and encouraging us from the word of God. And we had a wonderful weekend at the marriage retreat. Uh, personally, I just thank the Lord for the privilege of being able to uh, share time with my wife in preparation and sharing and teaching. And so uh, I, I can't go any further without first introducing my girlfriend. Amen. So <laughs> let me have my girlfriend stand. Uh, Athena Lachelle Scholar. I've been married to her going on 22 years. So. And I'm grateful for some of the saints that... Uh, came up with us from Main Street Baptist Church. Some of our members are here this morning. If they can just stand for a moment, uh, the saints from Main Street to come to support. Amen. Amen. So uh, I know that you called me today. You said, preach the word. Let's get to that. Amen. I invite you to stand with me if you're able and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3 beginning at verse 14. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation of God's Word. If you can follow, please follow on your copy of God's Word. We believe that the Word of God, the written Word, is the voice of God. And therefore, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, the Word of God reads as follows, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, let the church say. Father God, we bless you for this day. Lord, we ask that you will tabernacle among us, that you will open up our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word, that you will incline our hearts to this reality this morning, that this prayer would be our prayer for one another. Thank you, Lord God, for this church. We bless you, O oh God, uh, for the under-shepherd and the other preachers, pastors in this church, as well as other deacons and officers. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. You may be seated. Let me entitle the message this morning simply, Praying Your Strength in the Lord. Praying Your Strength in the Lord. Uh, when the Lord saved me in college, I began visiting a church, and at this church, uh, they would have testimony service before the actual service began. And during testimony service, someone would get up and share what the Lord has been doing in their life, and, and as a person would stand up in the congregation, they would begin by saying, give an honor to God who is the head of my life. And then they'll begin to share uh, the things that God has been doing in their life. And then before and as they were concluding their testimony, they would say, you all pray my strength in the Lord. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21 is the model prayer of what it means to pray for one another's strength in the Lord. And if you're like me sometimes, church, as you're praying to the Lord, sometimes you come to the end of yourself. Uh, whether you're praying for yourself or praying for other people, you just go to a point and you can just say, Lord, help this person or help me. And you can't go sometimes beyond that. And I've learned in my Christian experience that it's important to intermingle God's word with your prayers. Uh, this is what's referred to as scripture-saturated prayer. Praying God's word back to him. Praying God's promises back to him. And if there's any prayer that, that should be, uh, that you should intermingle with your own personal prayer life, it should be Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. This is a prayer request that you ought to memorize church and praying for one another. Included in this short prayer, in verses 14 to 21, we have two petitions. Two petitions the church should be committed to praying on behalf of one another so that we might experience the riches that we have in Christ. Are you with me, church? The first petition, the church should be committed to praying on behalf of one another, is given to us in verses 14 to verse 18. We should pray for one another to be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Notice with me in verse 14, the Apostle Paul begins by saying, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. If you're looking at your Bible, you'll notice in verse 1 of the same chapter, the Apostle Paul began for this reason. And it lets us know that the Apostle Paul had every intent to begin this chapter with the prayer request that we see here in verse 14. But, but, but he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to, 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 to continue on and to develop and unfold the mystery of the blessings of Gentiles and Jews being incorporated together in the body of Christ that he just articulated in chapter 2 verses 11 to 22. So Paul had just talked about the fact that that one time we as Gentiles as non-Jews were separated from Christ. Uh, we were outside the covenants of God that we had no hope in the world but Christ has brought us near through his blood and now now we're in the body of Christ and we're not strangers we're not aliens we are co-heirs with one another in Christ. We're all a part of God's heavenly household, and therefore we all have access. It doesn't matter who you are, white, black, male, female, 
slave or free. We all have access to God through Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, for this reason. And the Spirit just prompts Paul. He moves upon Paul to, to, to talk a little bit more about this mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament concerning the church comprising Jews and Gentiles. And he says, we're fellow members, we're fellow heirs. And Paul says, it's just a joy and a privilege. The grace that was given unto me to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. For this reason. After he's articulated all of the riches that we have in Christ, he says, now my prayer is that we would experience those riches. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father of whom every family in heaven and earth is named. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. Uh, according to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, uh, bowing, uh, Jews would typically stand as their prayer posture. Uh, but the book of Acts lets us know that bowing oftentimes is associated with those seasons of life where things are rather intense. Uh, when you're going through a struggle, uh, when, when, when things are just difficult and you just bow your knee to God. Yet it's interesting here in the book of Ephesians, position is all important. The believer's position in Christ is so important. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, Paul writes that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Uh, chapter 4 verse 1, he says we ought to walk in a manner worthy of our calling for which we've been called in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11, he says, now we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So Paul takes us from being seated, kneeling, walking, and standing. And yet here in this text here, we understand that, that uh, there's a way in which uh, God just lets us know, and I understand even as a pastor, that, that all the preaching in the world would not cause the church to experience all the spiritual riches that we have in Christ, but by prayer. We can talk about the riches, but Paul's prayer is that we might experience the riches. Are you with me this morning? That we have in Christ. And yet God has a way of putting us on our knees. We know that there's only one way we can experience these blessings, and, and, and we are in Christ, but, but practically speaking, prayer is the means that, that Paul is using here to get us to understand how important it is, just not just to know in your mind that you're in Christ, but to experience in your life the fullness of the implications of being in Christ. And God has a way to put you on your knees, and oftentimes the best teacher in life to teach you the importance of prayer is tribulation. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, For this reason I, the Apostle Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is a prison epistle. The Apostle Paul was in a Roman prison. In verse 13, Paul said, Don't lose heart at my tribulation. It's for your good. If God had not put me in this position, I would not be offering up prayer to God on your behalf. God, God has a way with, with, with tribulation and trials to just... Get you to humble yourself, amen? 
Oftentimes, when, when, when seasons are well and your, your circumstances are favorable, we don't pray as intensely as we ought to pray. Oh, I'm not saying we don't pray. We pray. Oftentimes, we mouth out words to God that our hearts are not really connected to what we're saying. And yet, there's those seasons where God brings adversity. When life gets difficult, and it's at that moment that you, you pray and your mind's not drifting, you're praying and you're cognizant of God's word. You're praying God's promises back to God. We can structure our prayer. We can articulate our prayer. But tribulation causes us to practice what it means to pray. One preacher by the name of Steve Lawson said it best, trials are God's unannounced exams in order to see how we're doing in the school of faith. And so God just has a way of just bringing trials our way just to show us where we are in our walk with him. And Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. That's the best prayer oftentimes when you're going through trials. Before the Father, from every family, verse 15, in heaven and earth derives its name. The, the word derived there is in the present tense. God is currently naming sinners that he brings into the church as the church. That's the church. And what Paul is saying here is that every family in heaven and earth, from the Old Testament saint to the New Testament saint, derives its name. Now that's important before Paul gets into his request. See, oftentimes we just go right into the presence of God and make our request known. But Paul wants to just strengthen his own faith that the Father in heaven hears his prayer by reminding himself of who God is. Are y'all with me this morning? I mean, before you just, before you make your request known, you just remind yourself, God, you're my Father. God, you are Lord in heaven and earth. You're sovereign over all things. You're the God that spoke the world into existence out of nothing. You're the God that parted the Red Sea. God, you're the one that has been with me through all my trials and tribulations. And then when you, all, when you just begin to address God as he is, then when you make your request, everything is seen in its proper perspective. The Apostle Paul is saying, Lord, I just want, before I get to the request, you are the one from every family in heaven and earth derives his name. Now, if you know anything about uh, background and culture, and, and particularly in the, in, the, in the ancient world, even among the Jews, that this concept of giving name was to be a picture of authority. Uh, Adam named the animals. It was to demonstrate that he has, uh, has, has dominion over them. And then he gives his name to his wife. He names his wife Eve to show that he's a leader in the home. And so Paul is saying, Father, you've given us all your name. I'm acknowledging that you have all authority over the life of your people. Therefore, I'm asking you to grant something to us because we're your people. And, and, the, and, the, and the request is given to us beginning at verse 16. Are you with me, church? Ephesians 3.16, here's the request, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, that God would give you something. But not just give you anything. He said, I ask, Lord, that you, that you would... Grant according to the riches of your glory. Now, now we got to be good, uh, good Bible studiers, good, good Bible interpreters by observing what Paul or how Paul is saying this. He doesn't say, Lord, I ask that you would grant out of the riches of your glory. 
I want you to give us according to the riches of your glory. Uh, if you're Bill Gates and you want to give out of your $89 billion, you just give some person five bucks. But if you're going to ask him to give according to the riches of his billion-dollar wealth, he'll give you a lot of money, billions of dollars. So Paul is saying, Lord, I'm asking you according to the riches of your glory. Because you're great, you give great things. Because you're good, you give good things. And I ask you to give according to the riches of your glory. There was someone who had asked Napoleon one day a tremendous favor. And Napoleon granted the man this favor. He said, the man honored me by the magnitude of his request. Paul is honoring God by the magnitude of this request on our behalf. And what's the request? To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened, listen, by means of the Holy Spirit, listen, in the inner man, in the new man, in the regenerated self. See, when you were, before you were saved, you were your old self. And then God saved you, you have a new self. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, new things have come. And so Paul is saying, Lord, I'm asking according to the riches of your glory, that you would strengthen each believer in the church at Ephesus with power by your spirit in the inner man. Now, the outer man refers to your physical body. And our physical bodies are decaying day by day. And Paul's saying, listen, no matter what's going on on the outside, if God can strengthen me with power by the spirit on the inside, I can still be resilient. I can still be grateful. I can still be joyful. I can still be thankful no matter what's going on on the outside. Joy is not circumstance, circumstance driven. It is a vertical perspective of who's in control of your life. Well, I'm making sense this morning. Notice this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer that no matter what is happening on the outside, the spirit of God will strengthen me with power in the inner man, the mind, the will, and the emotions, that no matter what is happening in my circumstances, I can still be thankful. I can still be joyful. I can still be self-controlled. I can still be loving. I can still be faithful. I can still be patient. Why should I pray for the Spirit, and why should you pray for the Spirit to strengthen one another with power in the inner man? We notice here in verse 17, so that, that's a purpose statement. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. The word dwell there means permanent habitation. It's different than simply sojourning or staying somewhere temporarily. It's a permanent habitation, not, not an occasional visit. Now listen, at the moment of salvation, every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit represents Christ in your life. And what the Holy Spirit does in your life is the same thing the Holy, that Christ did in the life of the apostles, empowered them to live according to the will of God. But the point I want to make with you, church, is that, that Paul is not praying for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you or for Christ to dwell in you. 
Christ is already dwelling within you as represented by the Holy Spirit. The prayer is, what's the condition of his habitation in your heart? And here is his prayer is that Christ may dwell comfortably or be settled down in your heart through faith. Notice in verse 16 and verse 17, Paul uses inner man and heart interchangeably. And the main point of this request is that the Holy Spirit will strengthen the believer's inner man or heart to such an extent that their faith in Christ will be strong. And when your faith in Christ is strong, Christ is settled down in your heart. Church, listen, when your faith in Christ is weak, your relationship to Christ is weak. I'm sure you may have read or heard of the book, the little booklet called Our Heart, Christ Home, uh, written by a man named Robert Munger. And in this little booklet, uh, Robert Munger speaks of the heart being the home that Christ dwells in in the believer's life. And that Christ is, when he comes into our lives, he seeks to settle down and dwell comfortably in our hearts. And so there are various rooms in this heart that is Christ's home. And the first room that Robert Munger speaks of is the room of the library, the library room. And the library room is the place of the mind, the things that we meditate on, the things that we think on. And Christ comes in the library of our hearts and he sees all these books on the shelf, all these worldly books and all these carnal books and fleshly books. And he begins to remove those books off the shelf and put his word on the shelf. And then he moves from the, the, the library to the dining room. And the dining room is a place of the appetite. He, he noticed on the menu there's nothing on the menu but worldly, fleshly, carnal desires. He begins to remove that menu and puts his word in that place. Then he moves from the dining room to the living room. The living room is a place of fellowship. And he begins to realize that, that no matter, no, no, there's, no, it's, it's, it's no wonder why you're not walking with the Lord like you should because all your friends are worldly companions. And, 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 and bad company corrupts good morals. So he gets them all out of the house, and he begins to settle down in the living room. Then he goes throughout the, the, the house and, and gets all the corners and, and all the various places. Then he goes into the closet where all our skeletons are. And he, he begins to clean all that out. And once he begins to remove all of the fleshly, carnal, sinful, worldly things and begins to replace them by his spirit and his word and fellowship, then he can settle down comfortably in our lives. Christ wants to dwell in your heart like a home, not like a hotel. When you go to a hotel, you're not trying to sit there and live there permanently. Some of us don't even unpack our bags when we go to a hotel. We understand we're only going to be here for a couple of days. It's no need to sit around and, and act as if this is our permanent residence. And yet for us, church, let's just be honest. Oftentimes, uh, we, we want Christ to check in at 11 o'clock on Sunday and check out at 1 p.m., on Sunday. And we wonder why Christ is not dwelling comfortably in our lives. We're not receiving the overflow of the power that God wants us to have because he's not settled down in our hearts. So the question here is not an issue of Christ's presence, but a question, what's the condition of Christ's presence in your life? Is he settled down in your heart? What's the result of Christ being settled down in your heart. Notice as we go on here in verse 17, so that you may be rooted and grounded in love. I, I need to hear me this morning. The, the, the request is this. Father, I'm asking it according to the riches of your glory that each and every believer at force may be strengthened 
with power by the Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts comfortably. And when he's dwelling in your hearts comfortably, when your faith is strengthened in Christ and he's dwelling there comfortably, then you'll be rooted and grounded in love. Paul gets so caught up here in this prayer, he just mixed metaphors here. Rooted come from the field of agriculture. Grounded comes from the field of architecture. And, and what Paul is saying here is that, that once you are strengthened with power by the Spirit in the inner man, and Christ is dwelling in your heart through faith, Christ himself will root you deep in the ground of his love, and he will stabilize you on the foundation of his love. And the tense here is this, that you'll be so rooted and so grounded that when the storms of life come, you don't move. You're stabilized and rooted in the love of Christ. Is this meaning anything to you this morning? He will root you in his love. He will ground you and stabilize you on the foundation of his love that no matter what's going on on the outside, you won't question the love of God because you're rooted and grounded in him. The better way of rendering these verses have been firmly established and settled in love. Now, verse 17 is really to be read in concert with verses 18 and 19. And this actually is the features the second purpose of Paul's petition. Have been firmly established and settled in love in order that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. I want... Christ wants to root you deep in the soil of his love. He wants to establish you on the foundation of his love. And it gets to the point that, that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints. This is a, you cannot comprehend the love of Christ in isolation. You can only comprehend the love of Christ in community. You understand? When, when, when you know that God is doing something in somebody else's life, that enforces that he'll do the same in my life and that he's with us. So, so you'll be able to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we know the purpose here is that as I'm strengthened, as we're strengthened by the Spirit, Christ is dwelling comfortably, we're rooted and grounded, now we can think about the breath of God's love. Paul let us know the breath of his love in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, that the Father chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, before the sun was created, the moon was created, the stars were created, when there was only God. He chose you. Listen, this is the thing that blows me away about the love of God towards me before the foundation of the world. God knew all my mess. God knew all my sin before the foundation of the world. He knew how I act after salvation, and he still chose me. That's the, the breadth of the love of God. The length of the love is that he would send his son. And that he would place his son on the rugged cross and pour out all his wrath on his son on my behalf. That, that God would, would hold Christ legally responsible for every sin that I would ever commit. Though he commit not one sin. And he would die in my place as an atoning sacrifice. That's the length of his love. The, 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 the height of his love is that he would take a sinner like me and a sinner like you and raise us up and seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. 
the depth of his love is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when he talks about that you were once dead in your trespassing sins, and you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Don't forget where you were before God saved you. You weren't seeking after God. You were living your own way, and despite the evil stuff you were doing, God still pursued you. God woke you up every day. God kept feeding you every day, providing for you, even though you did not give him thanks. You didn't care about obeying him. You want to live your own way. And yet, despite all that, that's why Paul concludes in verse 4, says, but God. Butology, as they call it. But God, being rich in mercy. That's the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. Let me just be honest with you, church, that the more we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, the more our minds will expand and take note of the breadth of his love, the depth of his love. We see the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross. We see the love of Christ that he fulfills his promises to us. We see the love of Christ and his providential guidance that he watches over us. Ain't no telling who you standing next to in the grocery store. And yet God watches over you every single day, guards you from dangers seen and unseen. Things happen around you that God keeps you from. And you think about how he intercedes for you and he prays for you every day, even when you don't even pray. The son is turning to the father, praying on your behalf every morning, every evening. And you think about the, the love of Christ, his fellowship and suffering. And, and, and how God gives you benefits that you don't even request of him. Are y'all hearing me this morning? How he comforts me in my afflictions and he strengthens me in my trials. And he's preparing a place for me in glory. No matter what's happening on the outside. Don't matter. As long as I'm rooted and grounded in the love of God. When Napoleon's armies opened the prison that had been occupied by the Spanish Inquisition, they noticed that there had been a man that had been incarcerated for his faith. His body had long been decayed. The only thing that testified of his confinement was a chain that was chained around his ankle bone. But this man that was in this dungeon had left a testimony, a witness, even in the midst of his suffering. In this small dismal cell, he had etched on the wall the cross, a rough etch of the cross. At the top of the cross in Spanish, he wrote the word height. Underneath the cross, he wrote in Spanish, depth. To the left of the cross, he wrote in Spanish, width. And to the right, he wrote length. This man left a testimony that even in suffering, he did not lose sight of the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. And church, what Paul is praying here is that even when you're in your season of adversity, if you can go back to the cross and remember how God has loved you in Christ, that will stabilize you and root you and, and ground you no matter what season you're going through currently. Amen? Now we transition to the second and last petition that the Apostle Paul wants the church to be committed to and praying on behalf of one another. It is given to us in verses 19 to 21, and that is this. We should pray for one another to comprehend the love of Christ so that we may all be filled with the fullness of God. Notice in verse 19, 
and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The word know there in the original means to know by experience. Not, not intellectual, not informational. That we may know by experience the love of Christ that goes beyond, that goes beyond knowledge or goes beyond words just merely written on a page of our Bibles. To know the love of Christ. To experience the love of Christ that goes beyond what the mind can fully comprehend. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and 39, the Apostle Paul says, What or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives some scenarios that we oftentimes may think are evidences that, that we have been separated or divorced from the love of Christ. He says, uh, Shall tribulation, shall distress or a nervous breakdown, or persecution or famine when there's no money in your pocket? Or nakedness where there's no clothes on your back? Or peril when life, your life is in danger? Or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If Christ suffered on my behalf as an expression of his love for me, then why would I think in my suffering he's not loving me? Oftentimes, we want to question the love of God by beginning with ourselves. If things don't go the way we don't like it, then God may not, must not be loving me. Paul said, you don't never begin with you. You go back to the cross and you think about what God has done for you in Christ that assures you that he loves you. I don't think you're hearing me this morning. I, that's why I'm glad I brought a witness. In verse 31 of Romans 8, it says, In all these things, who, who, who is able... In verse 31 of Romans 8, he, said, he goes by, he says, he says that, 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 that we've been justified and sanctified and glorified. And he says that, that uh, who can successfully come against us? If God be for us, if God be for us, who can successfully stand against us? People will stand against you, but will they successfully stand against you? Then he says in verse 32, this is my prayer. That I pray for myself. He who did not spare his own son, but deliver him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. He says, if God gave you his son while you were yet his enemy, while you were yet a sinner, why would you think now he won't meet lesser needs now that you're his child? If God sent Christ on the cross and poured out his wrath on you while you were not even his, why would you think now that you're his, he can't pay your bills? Am I making sense? Am I making sense, church? Christ's death on the cross is his display of love towards us so that in our suffering, we don't question his love towards us. Charles Spurgeon said it best concerning Christ's love. It's so long that old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive 
temptation shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. To know the love of Christ by experience that surpasses knowledge. What I mean is that the love of God is not just what you read on the pages of Scripture. You can testify that's real in your life. When you know the love of God, when you read it, and then you know by experience, this God that loves me that's revealed in the word, I've seen it and I've tasted it. Does that make sense? Let me help you out. How many here saw the movie The Color Purple? I know Sister Red saw The Color Purple. Now, you know the scene in the movie when Suge Avery goes to the mailbox and she opens the mailbox and she noticed that a letter had been written to Celie from Celie's sister named Nettie. And it's been years since Celie had heard from her sister Nettie who's in Africa. And Suge comes into the house and she presents this letter to Celie and Celie drops it because she's so surprised. She hadn't heard from her sister in years. She thought her sister had not loved her anymore. And, and so when Mr. left the house, because you know Mr. didn't now allow Celie to get to that mailbox, and so he leaves and, and Shook said, let's go look around the house for the rest of the letters. They look around the house for the rest of the letters, and they pull up all these letters, hundreds of letters written from Nettie to Celie, and Celie said, there's so many, I don't know what to do. And so they order them, and she starts reading them, and she's reading the letters. Something starts to change in Celie. Her attitude starts changing to the point that Mr. Who was abusing her for years, she wasn't afraid of him no more. You skip over there to the dinner table. Suge Avery gets to the dish. She says, listen, we've enjoyed your company, but now it's time for us to go. Celie coming with us. Mr. said, what? I said, Celie coming with us over my dead body. Okay, that's, that, that's what you want? <laughs> Mr. turned to Celie. Now what's wrong with you? You're a low down dirty dog, that's what's wrong with you. And it's time for me to get out of here and your dead body be just the welcome mat I need. You can't to talk to my boy like that. And then she goes, and she says, you know, you took my sister Nettie away from me. You know she was the only one that loved me. What happened in Celie, as she read those letters, it, the, the love of Nettie came off the pages and began to change her attitude. And what I'm saying, church, that God has given you 66 love letters in the Bible. That, that as you read the love of God expressed to you in the scriptures, the words just don't stay on the page. They begin to come into your heart by the spirit. And that no matter what's going on on the outside, no matter what discouragement that you're dealing with in your life, you can face your mistress in life because you know the love of God towards you in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is praying. And when that happens, when that happens, you'll be filled up with all the fullness of God. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this prayer. That now at this point that I'm rooted, grounded, now I'm filled up with all the fullness of God. Now let me explain this as I close. The fullness of God had nothing to do with the the incommunicable attributes of God. There's communicable attributes. Attributes are qualities about God he shares with us. And there's qualities about God he does not share with us. Now, he don't share with us his omniscience. He don't share with us his omnipresence everywhere at once. He doesn't share with us his, his omnipotence. If God gave us omniscience, we, we would try to know everybody's business. If he gave us his omnipresence, we'll be in everybody's business. If he gave us his omnipotence, we'll try to control everybody's business. 
No, he don't give us that. He gives us his communicable attributes of his love, his grace, his patience, his self-control, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his love, and his joy. And Paul says that when you know the love of Christ, you'll be filled up with all of the fullness of God. You take a bottle and go to the ocean and put that bottle in the ocean. You don't have all the ocean in the bottle, but you have as much of the ocean in the bottle that the bottle can contain. And what Paul is saying is that you'll be filled up with as much of God by the Spirit in you that you can contain. Now, I don't think y'all hearing me this morning. See, when you feel, you, you listen, you, when you feel with the love of God and the patience of God, here's the thing, in the prayer walk, in the men's retreat, in the, in the marriage retreat, it said pray for patience. You ain't got to pray for patience if you got God in you. Patience is already there. You just need to be filled with the fullness of God to experience it. And what, 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 what we need to understand, here's on the practical level as a church. See, some of us are so insecure that if folk don't acknowledge you, if, if folk don't coddle you, if folk don't affirm you, you're ready to leave church. Some of us are so thin-skinned that we hold grudges from years on end. And what, what Paul is saying is that God wants to share himself with you. That when you're filled up with all the love of God, you're not insecure anymore if folk don't acknowledge you. If, God, if people don't coddle you. You're so filled up with the joy of God that, that you're not so thin-skinned when people talk to you in a tone you don't like. Y'all not hearing me this morning. When you're filled up with all the self-control of God, you don't lose it when folk don't, don't respect you like the way you feel you ought to be respected. See, the other thing is this, is that, that you ought to get to the point that you need to stop allowing other people to fill you up with their bad attitude. When I'm, when I'm filled with all the fullness of God, I'm not trying to live off your emptiness. And what I mean by that is this, that you allow people to fill you up with their bad attitude to the point we act like this. Well, if they ain't going to talk to me, I ain't going to talk to them. Well, if they ain't going to apologize to me, I'm not going to apologize to them. Thomas Watson said it best, that the devil loves a fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. If my heart is discontent, then the devil can cause discouragement in my life. But if I'm filled with all the fullness of God, I'm not looking for you to fill me. I don't have to depend. I can love you without having to depend on you. 